Welcome to the Recruitment Leadership Podcast, hosted by Alison Humphreys. The Recruitment Leadership Podcast is here to help those in the recruitment industry gain awareness and understanding on the hot topics faced by those in the business of hiring people. In each episode, Alison Humphreys is joined by a fellow expert to offer professional knowledge, insight and advice on the biggest subjects affecting recruitment businesses. It's the podcast to listen to for recruitment business frontrunners seeking expert information from industry-leading advisors. Welcome to the Recruitment Leadership Podcast. So hello and welcome to this episode of the Recruitment Leadership Podcast. I'm Alison Humphreys. Um, I'm delighted to be joined today by Simon Whitehead, uh, uh, who's employment partner at Bradmers um, legal firm and formerly managing partner of HRC Law. Mm, that's right. um, so Simon, thank you very much for making time to do this with us at what I'm sure is a busy run up to... Interesting time that we're in at the moment. Yeah, definitely, yeah. <laughs> uh, busy run up to our 35 implementation. Uh, Simon, for anyone who didn't hear it, Simon actually was kind enough to record a podcast, well, I was going to say about 14 months ago. Yeah, probably. When there were a lot of unknowns mm-hmm. about IR35 changes, we're in a completely different position now. And so uh, at Recruitment Leadership, we felt it would be very useful for our listeners to uh, drill down on some of the minutiae. Um, just to do some scene setting, what we're not going to do is run through the basics. So um, I'm kind of expecting that our listeners understand the shift in liability mm-hmm. um, under the new regulations and broadly who it applies to. Um, so we'll go from there. Um, Simon, I listened, had a quick listen to the podcast we did um, just over a year ago. And in that context, you were saying... Um, about the Gangmasters and Labour Abuse Authority, the Taylor Report, um, that you thought that we were moving into a new uh, era of regulation, if you like, um, for recruitment. I think that's right. Yeah, I think that is right. I think we're moving more into a sort of more corporate regulation rather than an individual regulation. Um, There is a bit of uncertainty at the moment because of um, the wonderful B word and Brexit and the amount of time that that has taken up from the government's perspective. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we should have had, for example, around IR35, we should have had the budget in November last year, but instead we had a general election. And, you know, I don't think anyone expected the Conservatives to get to the majority that they did. And it's been interesting since December, um, obviously them trying to obviously get to a position with Brexit where they knew what what was happening in respect of that. Mm -hmm. But we've not really come out of the blocks yet. And we've not really got a true sense of travel of direction for this government. But I do still think that it will be um, a more corporate regulatory background that we'll see. Um, There's certainly rumours still afoot about a super regulator. So bringing together the Employment Agencies Inspectorate, the GLA, um, the National Minimum Wage part of HMRC and some of the immigration powers. So there is one regulator looking at um, flexible working, the gig economy, however you want to, to phrase that. But it is a, an element of uncertainty because the Taylor report really was Theresa May's baby. It mm-hmm. was very much her personal um, sort of report and, and uh, appointment that she made of, of Matthew Taylor. And, you know, we've not really seen sort of Boris Johnson's sort of take on that and how we're going to go. And obviously you sort of see what's happened so far around sort of Dominic Cummings and um, the special advisors and his... Um, 
dislike of HR, shall we say, and, and that sort of area of, of wanting to be a little bit more radical. And it'd be interesting to see if that plays out and how it plays out into policy. And at the moment, we've not got that sort of big policy picture. But um, yeah, if I was a betting man, I'd say that we'd still be heading towards a more um, high level corporate because that sits more within the politics of, of where we are at the moment. And it'd be interesting to see how that impacts. And, you know, IR35 is an interesting starting position, really, because um, we've had uh, so it played a part in the manifesto or, or certainly in, in the campaigning and the Conservatives promised to do a review. We're sort of still in the middle of that review. It should have reported on the 20th of February, but it was still taking evidence as of earlier this week in the House of Lords. Um, so I think, you know, the reality is it will happen on the 6th of April. Mm. Um, I think there was some doubt as to whether it might or might not, um, certainly around general election time. I do think it will happen, and certainly the, the sort of um, comments and, and positioning that's been coming out of HMRC suggests that that's really going to happen. Mm-hmm. And certainly the new Chancellor is talking very much about soft landings now as opposed to delaying or not doing it at all. And what we're taking that to mean is is very much HMRC being a little bit more um, uh, sort of comfortable or, or reasonable or relaxed about potentially not getting it right straight off from the 6th of April. And one of the things that has changed since we spoke and where we have got a bit of clarity is that what they've now said is that it will apply from the 6th of April. So prior to that, we were in a situation where it was, well, if you pay an invoice after the 6th of April, it could be for services that were supplied prior to the 6th of April. Mm. And so that was causing confusion and difficulty because people were saying, well, actually, we need to be terminating contracts early to make sure that, we're clear for the 6th of April if we've got a problem around people being inside or outside of IR35. And it's very hard to advise because we've not got all the, the budget and the final legislation's not come out yet. But they have now cleared that up and said, well, it'll it'll apply from the 6th of April. So it's um, any services that are provided post 6th of April that the new rules will apply to. I think that does two things. One, it gives us a bit of clarity. Um, but more importantly, I think it gives us a very firm signal that it's likely to be happening it on is the 6th going of to April. Yeah. yeah, so we're focusing on the detail of implementation yeah. now. Okay. Um, and the direction of travel then, as we see, for the recruitment industry, and specifically those people who have been running temporary contract books, is towards more regulation. So for for decades now, um, politicians have been talking about Britain's flexible workforce. I'm not sure often when they spoke to camera, they actually understood what they meant by that. I think they thought it was people who were double jointed or (laughs) were just willing to stay a bit late to work sometimes. But in fact, we have had a a legal framework that has facilitated the the rise of flexible working compared to other countries, haven't we? Mm -hmm. And the direction of travel and we can't really put it any more specifically than that is towards something more regulated more european is that yeah fair statement i think um i think it has been hypercritical i'd say we sort of probably want our cake and eating it to a certain degree um we've obviously got a skills shortage we've got a people shortage you know the, the new immigration rules are very clear and you know the um, commentary that that's coming around in respect to the new uh, immigration position um, at the end of the year when the transition period ends is highlighting how few people we've got or how little uh, maneuverability we've got within the sort of numbers of people to fill the gaps that we've got for for, for what we need you know we're, we're pretty much at full employment so um that flexibility is still craved by employers and is still in use and is still wanted but at the same time um we've got a, 
a sort of position where they they need to recover more tax. So you know we've we've ended up with a large number of contractors. I mean you know. IR35 as a concept is not a new concept as we talked about last time. You know, it's been around since 1999-2000. Nothing's changing in respect of whether you are an employee or a self-employed, whether you're inside or outside of IR35. All that's changing is that the government are changing the rules so it makes it easier for them to recover the tax that they say is due on it, which is very much in line with where they want to go around... So from a tax perspective, wanted to move more to an American situation where it's very much everyone's going through payroll and it's very easy to track mm -hmm. uh, where the tax is coming from and where it should be paid. But then at the same time, want to keep an, an element of flexibility. So it is a bit muddled at the moment, I think, really, as to how we'll have to see how it all beds in. Because um, certainly if you look at the public sector, and it's hard to make comparisons because they are so different, but obviously the rules changed there in 2017. And anecdotally, um, lots of my clients were telling me that they saw an increase in the number of candidates that wanted permanent roles, not necessarily an increase in the number of permanent roles, because I don't think the budgets were there to ultimately take people on permanently. But they all said ultimately there were many, many more people that they had on their books looking for permanent positions. And it will be interesting to see how it does play out in the private sector when we when we finally get yeah. there. Yeah, and and um, based on estimates in the public sector, I've read figures like five point five billion of mm. extra tax has been collected from employers and uh, and workers, yeah. or employees now, um, since those changes were made. So I'm sure that there's an expectation of yeah. a lot of revenue in the private sector too. Oh, absolutely, and and you know certainly that was the position when they, they started about this. And as much as you know, it, it, we need to get our own house in order. You know, we can't expect the private sector to be doing this if the public sector aren't already doing it. And, you know, we all know and you know, we both you and I will know more than, than most people that, you know, the beast of government, if you like, the public sector was full of people that were ultimately um, putting services through contracts when the reality was there was very little to differentiate themselves between an employee and a contractor. So I think it was right that they started there. And, and I agree, you know, the figures are quite eye-watering if you accept them at face value. And I know a lot of commentators who perhaps have spent more time digging into them aren't necessarily as accepting of the figures that the government have put out. But I mean, I saw, for example, in year one, I think the tax saving or the tax revenue that was generated was 550 million. Um, and that's the public sector. So the private sector, I think, you know, certainly the figures are if they don't do anything by 2022, 23, I think it's something like 10 billion pounds um, that they would expect to be losing per annum by not enforcing um, the rules around IR35 okay. properly. So highly so motivated. Yeah. Okay. Right. Now, um, in the interval since we last did a, a broadcast, um, I've had a lot of conversations with people that have got more and more detail focused. And in very broad terms, the those conversations break down into three groups. Um, the first of which is small business owners, small recruitment business owners, um, who really haven't done anything so far. I think, to be fair, they hoped at the beginning of this year that it might not happen. Um, and they've been waiting to see what happens. So it would be helpful, I think, if we just address that group first, yeah. if you could identify the risks and then we could talk about what's absolutely essential for them to do now. Yeah, I, mean, I think it's understandable. I mean, you know, we've we've all been around, you know, I've been advising recruitment businesses for 20 years and it's just a constant st state of um, change, basically. And I think a lot of the time... Um, it's a bit of a damp squib. So there's lots of things, lots of changes that happen that people talk about really impacting. 
it happens six months after it happens, everyone sat there going, hmm, really? It's not, you know, the world has not ended. We've not all fallen off the edge of a cliff. And I think to a certain degree, the same will, the, will apply here. And I do think some smaller businesses have taken that approach of sort of saying, well, it's just another one of these things and it'll all, it'll all sort itself out. I also think there's a bit of confusion still about who it applies to. So obviously part of what the government did to try and, and make sure that they were, couldn't be criticised ultimately for making it too onerous is that they used the Companies Act definition of a large or a medium and big company and said, look, these changes in, in how we collect the tax or the liabilities um, will only apply to those companies that fall within that definition. And off the top of my head, I think it's sort of turnover of 10.2 million, more than 50 employees, I think balance sheets of 5.1 million. And still, so I was doing an event yesterday, and there's still confusion out there as to who it applies to. And it actually, that definition of a big company applies to the engager, the end user, not the recruiter. And still, there is, I think, a bit of a myth out there that actually, well, I'm a relatively small recruitment business, therefore it doesn't apply to me. And it's sort of like, well, that's not how it works. You know, who are you supplying? Well, I'm supplying Amazon or Tesco or whoever. Well, absolutely, it will, will apply to you because... The people that are using your services, the engagers, the end users, do fall within that definition um, and therefore it will apply. So it doesn't matter as a small recruitment business that you're small, it's who you're supplying to that's the important factor. And again, I don't think end users understand that either. So again, yesterday, um, a client or an end user who was at the event that I was speaking at um, was part of a, a very big global um, business, but had a relatively small presence in the UK. Um, now we need to work out just exactly how it how it was structured and whether it does fall within it. But but my gut feel was of what I heard was well, I think you will because it's about groups of companies and associated companies, and you're you're obviously using services in the UK, mm. so you certainly need to get to the bottom of it. I don't think you can simply just rely on the fact that well we're relatively small in the UK, so therefore it won't apply to us when actually you're a part of an absolutely huge global brand that that will. 15 times over apply. Um, of course. So if if you were talking to one of these very small recruitment business owners who's so far done nothing, they may only have a handful of um, contractors uh, or workers who were affected. But what are the absolute essentials that you would advise them to, to act on now? Bit of an audit, bit of a, bit of a sense check of who we've got and what we've got. Um, how many contractors have we got? What sort of groups do they fall into? And then what I'd probably do is the CES test. So um, the contractor uh, employment status sort of test, uh, which is on HMRC's website, run through that and get an idea of whether people are falling inside or outside IR35. Um, if they're falling outside of IR35, then really it's business as usual, not much to do and not, not much to consider. Um, if they're falling inside of IR35, then you, you need to start a dialogue with your clients, really, and ultimately decide how. And I very much I'd take a partnership approach, because if you're not going to talk to your clients, then one of your competitors will be talking to your clients. And, you know, th that's a really good opportunity to, to sell the skill that you bring to the services that you provide. Um, and it's a good opportunity, a good touch point to have dialogue with your clients and, and to appear knowledgeable, interested and adding value to the relationship. So, um, you know, you speak to your clients anyway, but certainly if they're falling with inside IR35, then have the conversation with the clients about how are you going to approach this and deal with it. But you need to know what the problem is first or whether you've got a problem before you can really do anything. Now, on a very practical note, 
Um, if somebody hasn't taken any steps so far, um, and perhaps there uh, there's a delay on getting a, a, a determination on a job, um, should they be advising their contractor to that they're going to terminate the existing contract with a view to starting a new one um, after? 5th of April? Um, not necessarily. I mean, it depends because the way that it ultimately works, you can you can continue to engage with those contractors, um, but obviously you're going to need to to change the terms. So it may be that that is the way of doing it, is that you just simply have to terminate the contract um, and start afresh with a new contract. The only reason for doing that will be to make the figures balance because clearly what you're going to have to do um, is you're going to have to deduct at source if they're inside of IR35 um, and you're going to have to find employers and I. So you're really going to have to, if you can't get any dialogue or you can't get any sense from your engager client, then unless you're prepared to um, subsidize the employers and I aspect of it and the um, apprenticeship levy aspect of it, you're going to have to terminate the contracts and start again because you're going to have to reduce the day rate down to a rate that ultimately allows you to do that. And what you can't do is you can't you can't keep the rate as it is and then just make a deduction in respect of employers and I because that's unlawful. So you're going to have to approach it as a new negotiation with that contract to say, well, your new day rate going forward is going to be whatever the figure is, less the deductions for NI and an apprentice levy, um, and then make the deductions for employees, so, tax and national insurance. So new schedule, at least, at very Absolutely. least. Absolutely, yes. yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, and the contract will need to change, but, um, you know, it, it's they're not as big changes, I, I don't necessarily think. If, you, if you've got a pretty decent consultancy contract or a contractor agreement in place at the moment, the changes are relatively minimal because all you're doing is you're applying a statutory requirement to deduct at source. Mm-hmm. It's just about thinking how you make up that payment and making sure that um, those elements, which are the employer's contributions to so the national insurance and the apprenticeship levy, are sitting at the right side of the line, if you like, so that right. it's not a deduction from their day rate their day rate is an amount less than the deductions that you need to make in respect of, of those. Um, and you just mentioned the CES tool, and I, I've advised a lot of my clients, I owners, recruitment business owners, to go and have a look and play around with the CES tool. Um, it's quite clear that the way the questions are asked, they could be answered very often about the same assignment in two different ways. Mm-hmm. And um, although HMRC say they will abide by in the determination of the CES tool, they've reserved the right to say you didn't fill it in properly, haven't they? Oh, absolutely. And I think that's got to be right because otherwise it's it's just carte blanche, isn't it, for you to answer the questions however you want to answer them mm. to get the decision that you ultimately want that's going to be beneficial to everyone in the supply chain. Um, but yes, I mean, that's right. And, and, you know, that tool's been around for a long time. They've upgraded it. They've They've enhanced it. They've made it better. It's still cumbersome. And it still often leads to an undeterminative decision. That is probably by design because the reality is that the case law is quite complicated now around that. So, you know, in the Halcyon days around 99, 2000, it was relatively easy to determine who was outside of IR35 and who was self-employed because very much it was all down to the contract. The contract was king. And provided that you had a substitution clause in the contract, then you tick the box and away you went. Um, so it would be very easy to do a, a status determination in the good old days because it was literally contract, substitution clause, tick, tick, boom, there you go, you're outside of IR35. Obviously, that was open to abuse, and the courts have reacted to that 
and have the, the decisions that have come out have enhanced that um, or complicated or made it more sophisticated now in respect of the test around um, whether you're self-employed or whether you're um, or an employee. So inside or outside IL35. And that test is complicated. And it's very hard to, to, to dumb it down. Um, you know, I'm a technophobe, but I wouldn't like to even think about starting trying to work out how you would ask those questions. And the questions are designed to make you think. So we had a client pre, probably about three years ago now, um, big, big business using lots of contractors. And they had someone doing the CEST tool and were basically answering the questions the wrong way around. And so when they asked the question, they not understood the question properly. And the answer that they gave was the sort of the reverse. And so the decisions were all over the place. And we were looking at them thinking, you know, gut feel, having done this for 20 years, is they should be outside of IL35, surely. But for some reason, they've got a status determination telling them that they're inside of IL35. Unraveled it, and it's because the questions, the person that was answering the question hadn't understood the question and was uh. answering it in the reverse way. So, so for instance, said one question was, um, do you provide company cars? Or, or do they use to, do they need to use vehicles for the purpose of, of the work that they're carrying out? And they'd answer the question, yes, they do. Um, but then when we asked the question, it was like, well, no, no, they don't. They need to travel to and from work like everyone else does. And they might use a car, but actually when they get to the office, they're in the office. And so you need to understand the questions. And that's really part of um, where I think a lot of the difficulties arise is that, you know, people don't fully understand the burden of the question. Absolutely, yes, yeah. yes. And um, you know, there are some people who will manipulate the answer, so they know that if they give an answer, then it's more likely it's going to point them in one direction. And that's again why they've they've used that. So the, the first thing that HMRC will do when they're investigating these things is that they'll go and talk to the people on the ground. So they'll go and talk to the contractor. They'll go and talk to probably either the operations manager or the person that ultimately is uh, in charge on a day to day basis, and will ask the questions to them. And, you know, that's where the problems start because the pro answers the questions they get at that level. So, for instance, around substitution, have you got the right to substitute? I don't know. Have you ever substituted? No. How would it work if you substituted? Well, I don't think I would ever substitute. And they say to the operations manager, is the right substitution? Absolutely no way. We wouldn't accept anyone else. But yet we've answered the question from a central perspective of saying, yes, we have a substitution clause in our contract. And yes, we would have... Um, the right substitution in, in, circum in certain circumstances. And so HMRC will grasp that and will run with that and say, well, look, you know, this is not, this in practice does not reflect what's, what you've told us in the answers to your question. So you can't rely on then a status determination when you've either manipulated or incorrectly answered the questions. And it doesn't really, it doesn't reflect on what's you've, happening. You've just highlighted an interesting point that, um, again, from the statements that I'm aware of, that determinations that have been coming out, um, there was a, a, a now perhaps slight, a slightly out of date belief that substitution was the Trump issue. Yeah. And in fact, supervision, direction and control now seems to be much more important. Um, um, yeah, I mean, I'd say it changes, it evolves. Substitution still is a big thing. So if you think, what's the difference between an employee and someone who's genuinely self-employed? And the example I always give is so the window cleaner. You know, I might get Joe Bloggs cleaning my windows and he comes around and he cleans the windows. And then one week I get someone completely different cleaning the windows. 
I don't think what on earth's going on there. I still just can pay the same company in respect to cleaning the windows, and I just assume that he's on holiday that week. Well, if you're an employee, that's not how it works. Uh, and I know that's quite um, a sort of an obvious example, but I think it's quite a good example to use to say, well, that's the difference. As an employee, you can't just simply say, oh, I'm pulled today. Can I send you in to do that? Um, whereas with a contractor, someone that's self-employed, you can. So I still think that's a really important point. I agree. I don't think it's still it's the be-all and end-all that it was. Um, I think supervision, direction, control comes into it much more than it ever did. But what we're finding from the ones we're doing is quite a lot around the expenses and the burden, the financial risk that you're taking. Mm -hmm. That seems to have... Um, come up the rankings somewhat in recent times so for example the the duty to make good work in your at your own expense yeah. if you're a genuine contractor yeah or ultimately mm. providing your own equipment yeah. or um you know those sorts of things where you're where you're um spending money to do the job because again as an employee you would expect all that equipment to be provided um and that that you know i think it's regularly tweaked and being moved around so it's interesting just to see how that that works okay all right so moving on there's a second group arguably overlapping a second group of recruitment business owners that i work with who have really struggled to get their clients um and candidates to some extent to engage in any discussion about ir35 so um by way of example uh some of their end user clients are have sort of assumed that um it's it's not actually a legal issue it's a recruiter's issue um some have assumed that they would just cover the cost and many of them are just saying no i'm not going on cestool have you got any advice for them briefly yeah i mean it's hard and it's always hard because um you know it's like taking the horse to water um but ultimately end engagers have to get on board with this because ultimately the liability will will pass to them and i agree with you i think engagers and users have been slow off the mark um and still lots are not understanding because they've never it's not their world they've never had to even think about it in the past they use a, a recruiter to supply them with um, labor and ultimately that's the service that's being provided um they've never had to really apply the mind to ir35 because the liability would never have really made its way up the supply chain I think it's just got to be about education. It's about getting in front of the right people. Um, and, you know, that tends to be, I would say, probably more finance. So um, senior accounting officers. So most large companies will have someone in their organization that has to sign off personally each year to say that their supply chain is free from, uh, and I paraphrase, but free from any sort of tax evasion, tax avoidance, and everything's compliant. And if they sign that and they don't know what's going on or something has gone on then that's a personal liability for them career over so you know in the worst case scenario finding your way to probably the finance team right um and getting past procurement because obviously procurements have got a different view on it in as much as they want the services and they want the services at the best price yes and they're not always engaged so again very recently, certainly this year, beginning of this year, um, very, very big, well-known, um, prides itself on ethical and moral sort of approach and in, in, in social conscience, if you like, in respect of how they um, deal with their suppliers. And the senior procurement person that we were dealing with there in respect of, of trying to negotiate 
um, just simply turned around and said, well, we don't care. It's That's the price we're paying. That's the contract we've got. You've got to make it good. So there is a buyer power yeah. issue, issue, isn't there? Okay. Um, so just before we come to a close, I'd like to talk about um, some of the more exotic models that have been entertained, if not implemented, by some recruitment businesses. So what I'm thinking about here is alternatives to CEST, um, statement of works, um, thinking about uh, engage, get to persuading their clients to to deal to have their dealings through a smaller subsidiary. These mm-hmm. kind of things. Um, can you give us your thoughts and experience on those? Yeah, I mean, I suppose the starting position is it depends on everyone in the supply chain's attitude to risk. Um, and you know, if you're if you've got a zero attitude to risk, then really you just need to be going with the CES tool, and you need to just be following the path, if you like. That obviously comes at a cost, and that's where that that sort of analysis of risk comes in. Um, but the CES tool, as you referred to earlier, that the advantage of that, even though it is cumbersome, it can be frustrating, is that if it gives you the decision and you've answered the questions correctly, as we said, but it gives you the decision outside of IR35, that gives you the starting position from HMRC to say, well, look, we acted in good faith, we've answered all these questions, that's the decision that we've got, and that's how we've applied it. And this soft landing that the Chancellor's talking about, I think, will come along in that sort of situation, then HMRC should ultimately accept that and say, fine, everyone's acted in good faith, and we're not going to ultimately... Um, try and recover from the supply chain. The alternatives to CEST, well, they do a job and they provide a function. Some of them are actually quite good. Um, And it's interesting. So I've had experience of one that I've looked at and where we've done a comparison between CEST and that. Um, You know, my gut feel would have been that that tool would have been more inclined to take you outside of IR35. And actually... The reverse was true in that particular occasion. Um, the sort of independent assessment tool was saying inside of IR35, whereas CES was telling us outside of IR35. So it's quite a complex decision to make. And, you know, it, that's why there's an element of risk involved with it. Um, I think those independent tools p- play a part, but you need to understand that it's not going to get you the get-out-of-jail-free cards should right. HMRC come knocking. And then, of course, then there's the whole issue of looking at your liabilities and who's underwriting those access tools and and that's the thing is and you know what we've seen is some end users some engagers not being comfortable with that um and saying that look we don't want because in effect what's happening with those insurance policies the insurance it's the contractor who's taking out the insurance and the engagers relying on the fact that if there's a problem that the um, insurance will pay the contractor's um, underpayment so that it doesn't flow up the chain Um, and there are different ways of doing it but that on most of the ones I've seen so far is how how they've worked and some engagers are saying we're not comfortable with that so what some engagers are doing looking taking out their own professional indemnity insurance um, that ultimately will cover the decision making um, depending on the numbers and other things so there is an element of protection there but I don't think it's perceived to be the sort of the get-out-of-jail-free card by some engagers, but that will obviously differ from case to case. So they are a useful tool to have, but they don't necessarily do the same thing as CEST and don't give the same protection. Statements of works, I think I've been... I thought that was perhaps going to be bigger than it has been, um, and I think that's good because I think people are appreciating 
that that's not necessarily as easy as it might seem on the can. Um, it's a different model. You're not you're not a recruiter. You're not supplying people. You're supplying services, whether they be IT, whether they be um, care, whether they be whatever they might might be providing, which requires a completely different approach to supplying individuals. I am aware of some that have taken quite a high uh, level approach to just simply changing the definition of the services. Um, you know, I think you'd have to have a, a good, robust attitude to risk if you were prepared to engage on that basis, because I just think it's an unknown at this stage. My observation on that, having having just, you know set up yeah. and run statement of works businesses, is that a number of the recruiters who spoke to me about that as a possibility simply did not understand enough yeah. about what the work their workers were doing mm. to package up a, a, a statement of works yeah. and to cost the risk absolutely like you know I, this is pre iowa 35 but ultimately um i had a client that did that from an it perspective yeah. and didn't understand that actually providing it services not people mm. and um it was to a bank rather large bank the IT infrastructure fell over and the first she knew there was a problem was when she was asked to give evidence to a select committee about her IT company's involvement in that so you don't really want to go down that path but yeah and and then you know and then the other things really you know none of them are the magic answer so I was saying to you earlier that I had um, an engager ring me yesterday say I've just had um, a recruiter on the phone that's got a tool that will guarantee that everyone's outside of IR35. Mm. And it's the Marvellous. Well, I know, absolutely. It's <laughs> like, crikey, Harry Potter is living. Um, it's like, well, you know, you know that that's not possible, but the psychology of selling, someone was selling a solution to his problem. And it's like, how can they guarantee that everyone's going to be outside of IR35? You can't physically do that. Um, so, you know, clearly they're out there. And people will buy them because ultimately it's providing a solution. Whether that solution is going to be robust enough, we're going to have to wait and see, I think, ultimately. Okay. Simon, thank you very much for your time. Uh, we're going to bring it to a close there. For any listeners who uh, feel they would like some legal advice to contact you happy. via Bradman's yeah, website. Yeah, website. And all the details are on there, so happy to okay. help. Okay, thank you. Um, and for all our listeners, best wishes in getting through this implementation period. Um, and if you'd like to engage with recruitment leadership in terms of developing business, uh, your sales strategy, and indeed working towards business exit or other event, then please contact me, Alison Humphreys, um, via the Recruitment Leadership website. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Recruitment Leadership Podcast. If you enjoyed our podcast, please subscribe, review and share so that others can find the podcast too. We really appreciate your support. If you have any questions about the topics covered or wish to find out more about recruitment leadership, please email alison at recruitmentleadership.co.uk referencing the podcast. We're also on LinkedIn where you can follow recruitment leadership and connect with Alison Humphreys. Thank you for listening and we hope you join us next time for another episode of the Recruitment Leadership Podcast.